Welcome to Deep Breath In, the podcast from the BMJ, sponsored by Medical Protection, where we tackle the everyday challenges of being a GP. And we've made it to the end of 2020, a year where as GPs, we've had a front seat view of the impact that coronavirus has had on society. Be it the patients who've died of the virus, those still suffering with symptoms months later, or those whose lives have been turned upside down from the economic and social impact and struggling with poverty, isolation and mental illness. But there have been some positives in 2020, unprecedented scientific effort to produce a vaccine, and, um, well, I guess the launch of this podcast. And today we're celebrating the 19th episode with a classic end-of-year quiz uh, featuring clinical pearls and some of the more surprising learning points from the BMJ's education pages. We'll also hear from two past guests. Judd Brewer will give us some winter survival tips and we'll have an inspiring, thought-provoking essay on 2020 from Iona Heath. I'm Tom Nolan, a GP in London and clinical editor for the BMJ. And today we're bringing you three podcast stars from across the BMJ's podcast series. Uh, I'll start with Kat from the Wellbeing Podcast. Welcome, Kat. Thanks, Tom. Hi, everybody. I'm Kat Chatfield. I'm a lapsed GP uh, and I also host our Wellbeing Podcast with my colleague, Abby Rimmer. And the second star is uh, Helen. Hi, Helen from the... um, which podcast are you from? Talk Evidence. <laughs> I think you're leaving that in, Duncan. The disrespect that I'm showing coming on this show. Um, I'm Helen McDonald. I'm the UK research editor for the BMJ and I'm an evidence-based medicine nerd. Um, I do our Talk Evidence podcast. And I won't forget who Jenny is because Jenny's with us every episode. Uh, hi, Jenny. How are you? <laughs> I'm well, Tom. I'm Jenny Rasanathan. I'm a family medicine doctor and clinical editor for the BMJ. It's so nice to be here again with you and with Kat and Helen. Yeah, no, it's great. And uh, thank you for, for coming on the, the podcast today. Uh, I thought we'd just start with you know, a bit of like self-reflection and maybe just ask you, you know, for 2020, you know, how has it, has it, how has it changed you, do you think, or your outlook or, or maybe your outlook on, on medicine? I'm not sure I fully digested everything from 2020 yet um, in order to answer that question. Um, I think, you know, we've seen, I think we've been pushed to work in ways that people had kind of considered before, but really didn't want to do in, in the numbers that we've seen globally. And now, you know, telemedicine, um, video consultations, different kinds of virtual um, engagements with patients is much more um, de rigueur. Um, But I suppose many of us have gone through transitions from seeing patients in person to speaking with them remotely and back, hopefully, um, to seeing them in person. And, And I think the real takeaway for me is that there's very little substitute for um, the kind of empathetic exchanges and um, really kind of um, fulfillment and satisfaction that you can get from from in-person patient encounters. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, I'm definitely looking forward, fingers crossed, to, to more of that next year. Um, Helen, I guess you've been watching this particularly from the evidence point of view on uh, Talk Evidence. Uh, what's uh, What's been your perspective on this year? You know, one of the most interesting things, I think I read it on Twitter from Ben Goldacre at some point about midway through the first wave. And he had written something like the the COVID pandemic was making everyone more like themselves. And and I thought that really kind of resonated with me. Um, and, I, and I think um, the ways in which I've honed being more like myself um, have been talking. So we've done a lot of talking on talk evidence. We've like quadrupled the number of episodes that that we normally do. Um, and largely what we've been talking about has been uncertainty and a willingness to share and be open and honest about the uncertainty that exists and the variety of ways in which you might act um, in line with some evidence supporting you. I think that has been a a real theme. Um, I think the other thing for me, which has been very satisfying, is the other thing I love to do is to create and to do new things. Um, And everyone's been forced to innovate in the pandemic. And I think one of the things that I've most enjoyed in 2020 is trying to... um, make our content live, which sounds very simple, um, but actually in publishing terms is quite difficult. So I've been working on our project to make living systematic reviews, in particular, um, a living systematic review of emerging treatments for COVID-19. And the idea there was really rather than to give people an answer today, to give people um, a sense of an evolving story of where we are um, in that journey. And I think that publication has been very helpful because really what it's done is to summarise that we've gone from not knowing towards some certainty that there are no really good treatments for COVID-19, perhaps aside from steroids for severe disease. And I hope that that's really helped um, to support healthcare systems to avoid investing in treatments that don't have a, a solid um, evidence base. And I think because I didn't mention that I am, what did you call a yourself, Cat? Lapsed GP. Some form of a lapsed GP. I call myself a resting <laughs> GP um, because I feel it's too early for me to have retired in my career. And yet um, I don't have time to practice clinically at the moment. But I think GP is really at the core of how I think. Um, and I think the other thing that I've enjoyed doing this year in talking to researchers is pushing people to think about um, people in the community, not just about people who've been admitted to hospital. When the evidence first started coming through, we saw lots of case series about people with severe disease. And it took a while to really learn about um, what was happening to the vast majority of people. And I still think that's a big, a big area around transmission mm-hmm. in the community and understanding um, environmental and behavioural interventions and what's going on that, that we still don't understand yeah. well. I think I saw that tweet as well, going back to that, and, and said something about the, the quiet, hard workers who just get on with it. And I thought, yeah, that, that's me. Is that you, Tom? <laughs> I, don't, mm. I know that's not true. So what am I, noisy, disruptive kind of work? <laughs> uh, I couldn't possibly say. Um, anyway, Kat. Uh... <laughs> oh, Helen and Jenny, that your hard acts to follow. I mean, I think my immediate reflection is a deeply personal one, which is that as a, a lapsed GP, so someone who is 
relatively recently out of practice, I immediately <laughs> felt this urge to get back to the front line and, you know, signed up for my, you know, registration to be reinstated. And yeah, I'm ready. I'm ready. Just call me up. Um, I, I'm still ready. I'm, I'm still waiting. Yeah, I'm here. Please <sighs> use my skills. Nothing. <laughs> nothing for months. Yeah. And there was nothing to do. No, <laughs> no, no grand kind of heroic <laughs> return. And I think that was quite good really because it's it's difficult to to let go of, of your your clinical work when as you said Helen being a GP is so much ingrained in how you think and, and and your kind of identity so having to kind of really step back from that and think about well how am I contributing in other ways I think is was really important for me and just to see the importance of the whole ecosystem around healthcare mm. not just the frontline providers but you know all the kind of the massive service changes we saw you know with management kind of really innovating kind of service pathways or you know switching to telemedicine um and then i think you know um to see in the bmj the really kind of direct impacts of what we were publishing you know none of this kind of 17 years from from research to bedside it was all kind of happening so quickly and so fast and to really think about how you could contribute in that way to the to the discussion and the debate and the uh, resolving of some of the many uncertainties that, that we had this year and then also um, the great joy for us of, of being allowed to st- or enabled to start the well-being podcast which was a topic that was really really close to my heart for a long time um, and that we've done some kind of written stuff on in the BMJ but being really allowed to to dive into that and just everybody recognised that it was so critical for for clinicians and, and for the whole you know everybody this year has had stress for their well-being so I think that was a real um, opportunity yeah so it's been kind of a, definitely lots to reflect on this year well um we're gonna we're gonna sort of pivot now from a sort of interesting chat about 2020 to um the details of the nice guidelines on hyperthyroidism does that sound good smooth smooth segue yeah, yeah. Sounds great I think so. <laughs> so we're gonna do a quiz so it's like a christmas quiz but we, we thought why why do you pick this topic okay well i i <laughs> i went right back to january i was thinking you know let's try and do a quiz that's vaguely chronological so we're gonna start oh, with i see you know, okay. those those days back in January where, you know, a new NICE guideline on hypothyroidism was kind of like a big event. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to ask you, that's the first quiz question. And we're going to just <laughs> go through the quiz, a few questions, nothing too um, serious, I hope, but, um, but maybe some useful like clinical nuggets there for, for us to, even you lap, lapsed or was it sleeping GP you are, Helen? Or? Resting. Resting, right. <laughs> I'm not semi-conscious, I'm just resting. <laughs> But, well, by the end of this round, you, you might be. Uh, well, so, maybe she's hypothyroid. <laughs> maybe. That we is need to question. replace we- that, you know? <laughs> so, um, okay, some rules for the quiz. It's just a multiple choice, um, and it's kind of like fingers on buzzers, but of course there's no buzzers, so just sort of make a noise if you, if you want to answer. <laughs> I haven't really thought that through. Okay, so question one. <laughs> What is the starting dose of levothyroxine for an adult under 65, according to the 2020 NICE guidelines? And there's uh, four, quest- four answers to choose from. Is it 25 micrograms, 100 micrograms, 1.6 micrograms per kilo, 
or none of the above, start lyothyronin. Ho, ho, ho. That's my noise. <laughs> okay, oh, I like that noise. <laughs> I got it with per kilo, but I can't remember if that's under 65 or over 65. So I'm going to go for C, the microgram yes. per kilo. You're right. Yeah. Yay. I, I'm, I'm t- <laughs> I Top like Mark's this, cat. Yeah, well done, cat. Yes, yeah, so one point to go. I mean, I, I have to admit that I see a lot of variation in that practice. Like, you see some people, you know, who have always started on 25 micrograms, others, people just go for 100. So I thought it was quite useful to know. So question two. Um, so when would you consider levothyroxine for adults with subclinical hypothyroidism? Again, this is according to the NICE guideline. So we've got th- three options this time. TSH of over 10 on two separate occasions, three months apart. If the patient has, so option two, if the patient has thyroid antibodies. Or option three, if the patient tells you that their friend who's a GP says they really should have it. (laughs) Is that a trick question? I think more than one of those is true. I'm pretty sure it was the first option with a TSH level above 10 on two separate occasions separated by three months. Yes, yeah, I had a right. patient with sub. Woohoo! I had a patient with subclinical <laughs> hypothyroidism and didn't follow that guidance. Um, and I, I feel guilty saying that, but at the same time, it was very much a conversation, and we talked about trying this as an option to alleviate some of the symptoms, which were consistent with hypothyroidism. And yeah. he got better. Um, but every time I read the guidelines, I feel guilty and um, a bit ashamed of not following them. No. But do the guidelines sort of um, suggest that's not okay? I, th- I think that's okay, isn't it? I mean, we, we published also, I'm more familiar with the rapid recommendations guidelines on this topic that we published, although that was May 2019. So I really am stretching my memory somewhat here. But I seem to remember that um, that in that guidance, if people had severe symptoms then that might be a circumstance in which you could consider a trial of the medication to see if it worked yeah and what was the other main difference in in that the rapid recommendations uh helen i again i I forget but it, it does vary a little bit from the nice guideline doesn't it i think there are two important differences one um is in terms of how, of, in terms of the information that they started with, the evidence that the NICE guidance looks at compared to the evidence that the rapid recommendations looks at is slightly different. And I just clicked these up because I, I seem to remember some controversy at the time around the differing recommendations. But in essence, the, the rapid recommendations predominantly uses a systematic review at its base, which is very heavily influenced by a, a large primary care trial that was done in over 65s whereas the nice guidelines it's i find the evidence a little bit harder to follow in that but they look at a smaller subset of trials so i think that's one reason which perhaps drives um the differences um and then in terms of the recommendation the rapid recommendation makes a strong recommendation against using thyroid hormone therapy for patients with subclinical hypothyroidism and they and they sort of pick a 20 rather than a 10 threshold as their um, degree of elevation that they consider um, it might be worth looking at. Um, and 
but they add some qualifications that the the recommendation may not apply to those people who have severe symptoms so the the situation jenny was mentioning um and to much younger adults um people who are pregnant and also people who are already taking treatment so that their guidance was very much centered around people who are at the beginning of the process trying to decide what to do whereas i think the nice guidance was a kind of consider so what might be in guideline sort of um jargon um a weak recommendation as opposed to um a strong recommendation where strong recommendations are typically a standard of care whereas weak recommendations are much more um discursive perhaps yeah thank you helen that's incredibly helpful and yeah we'll 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 need to make you our regular guideline untangle i love a guideline (laughs) (laughs) i haven't gone that deep into a comparison i'm sure there are other things that you you okay well i think that was that was enough for me (laughs) (laughs) was that enough (laughs) anyway let's move on to our next question um so this is about serial measurements. So before we get onto our, our COVID um, part of the quiz, I've got one more non-COVID thing just because, um, well, I guess it's nice to talk about something else. Um, so just before the, the, the COVID first wave hit us, um, we published a paper from James McCormack and Daniel Holmes called Your Results May Vary, the Imprecision of Medical Measurements. Um, and this is all about the fact that levels of things that we measure, you know, like your haemoglobin or cholesterol or whatever, uh, are always in flux, you know, from one day to the next, or one month to the next, you know, lots of things influence the levels of these things in our in our blood. Uh, and, you know, they were, it was a call really for, for clinicians to be aware of this problem and, um, and well, consider it when, particularly when discussing these with patients. So um, I'm going to ask you, give you some examples of serial measurements. Uh, I want you to tell me if you think that the change in the results are likely to be a true difference, that's... Um, with a 95% confidence interval, in case you're wondering, <laughs> or due to a combined effects of this biological variation and analytic variation of, of what goes on in the lab. Did that all make sense? If you could see us on Zoom, everyone is looking very mystified and shaking their heads in disbelief that Tom has brought up such a ridiculous question. <laughs> well, particularly since the article well, has this really helpful tool that does it for you when you put the values well, in. So there's really literally no point in my brain knowing this information. Well, <laughs> Come I on, mean, do your question, Tom. We'll, yeah. we'll stop criticising well, your quiz. Well, Give us a go. I did the question. That's the... the the fact that there's a tool is the reason why we're having a question about it, because it was easier to, to think of one. Anyway, um, so um, I'm going to do one each. So we're going to go cat first. You can go first because um, yeah, you're so familiar with the tool. Yeah, after that criticism, I should deserve to go first. <laughs> so a total cholesterol from 5 um, to 4.5. Um, would that be a true difference? I'm going to say that likely is to be not a significant difference. Significant difference. You're right. One point for cat. So it would. I won't ask you what it would have to go to. So, but um, Ooh, yeah, for I that, don't know. For you to have a, a bonus a, point. How about <laughs> bonus point, Tom? <laughs> I'm going to say. Go on then. Just because it's simple, I'm going to say five to four. Close. Uh, 4.12. 4.12. Oh. Tip in my tongue. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's been quite a big difference. I mean, we uh, one of the things in the paper 
is that often when you're seeing a patient and the cholesterol goes from five to four point five, you know, you pat the patient and you go, "Oh, well done," you know, you've really, <laughs> you've really done well with your diet, haven't you? And uh, but actually, you're just all you're seeing is noise. So, next question, um, Jenny. Uh, hemoglobin of 120 grams per liter to 110. What do you think? True or? Have you got the tool out in front of you, Jenny? You said yeah. hemoglobin looking... from what to what? <laughs> 120 to 110. She's cheating, isn't she? she I really am cheating. looks like she's typing it in. <laughs> she's definitely um, typing it in. I'm using the tool because, she's got a because face. number one, I wanted to try it out, but number two, um, these are not the usual units that I use. So it's very uh, difficult for me to imagine what <laughs> the correct reference range would be. I, I, I okay. typically think about this in different units, but um, also they just kind of sound close enough, like 120 to 110. I, my guess would be that it's not significantly different. That's right. You're right. Yes. Um, well, do you, for the bonus points, um, do, do you want to hazard a guess of what it would be? <laughs> I feel um, like we have to continue with this bonus point thing now. <sighs> okay. There's a timer. What it would have to be? Okay. Oh, there's a timer. What? Um, <laughs> well, according to this article, um, the difference would have to be some create. I don't know. Okay, some percentage no, fine it would have to be more than six to ten percent different okay okay so no, fine I, uh, I, mean, no, the I answer... suppose maybe less than 105 <laughs> uh no i can't believe you didn't get this it's 109.7 <laughs> that's a big change so 120 to 109.7 that is a big change yeah. so so i chose those because that's the difference between not anemic and anemic mm. in a woman for those um, uh, normal normal reference. Okay, um, <coughs> Helen, you put us out of our misery and um, let's finish this round. Uh, TSH from seven milliunits oh, per liter. Oh, not the TSH again. <laughs> <laughs> Say that again. Uh, seven milliunits per yeah. liter to four. Yeah. Um, I, I'm going to buck the trend. I'm going to say I think that's a meaningful difference. No, it's not. No. Oh, no. <clears throat> no. But you can still go for your bonus point if you want. So what would the difference be? Yeah. Well, it's going to be quite big then, isn't it? Um, I don't know. Let's go like one and like one under that. Three. I think it must be there or thereabouts. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's 3.78. <laughs> <laughs> I have right. to say, Tom... I enjoyed talking to James McCormack more about the the concept behind this article in a bar in Copenhagen than, than I did, did being quizzed on it. Because <laughs> I was very interested in the principle and despite being an EBM nerd, I am not a mathematician. <laughs> it's a really interesting principle though. I mean, those are huge changes that, are, that might appear on, you know, intuitive, uh, you know, 
when you just get them and you're yeah. insurancing, is this a significant change? Am I going to change a management plan? To really understand that they, they don't represent anything more than normal statistical, biological and analytical variation is, is really important. Um, well, I think one of the things James asked for, wasn't it? It was that the kind of confidence interval or meaningful differences should be better shown on, yeah. on blood test <clears throat> results and the like, um, which I think would be very useful. Yeah. He was saying, you know, just show it as like a, a blob, like a ballpark figure. So rather than, you know, giving this very precise value, which is really misleading. Um, Jenny? No, just to say on that point, that that is when, when our decision-making conversations uh, with patients really center on what the number is, we're doing all of us a disservice. You know, it's very easy to focus on the fact that, oh, your cholesterol's now 4.5, congratulations. <laughs> or when we're making treatment decisions based on, and he talks about this in the article, you know, your hemoglobin A1C being 6.2, when it very well could be 6.5 in that moment or even higher. And even moments where we see perceived change um, depending on the variation at that time, if the first reading was artificially low and the second reading was artificially high, you know we could be going in the wrong direction of of mm, what we mm. are of what we are seeing by those discrete numbers. Yeah, yeah. I think the, the the only well one caveat which one of the peer reviewers picked up on, um, which I thought was a good point, was um, was that they have selected this ninety five percent confidence interval and. Uh, I guess the, the peer reviewer's um, point was in practice, you know, you, you don't tend to wait till you're 95% sure to start investigating someone's anemia. <laughs> um, you know, 50% is probably good enough. And so um, so that's why mm. in, if you use the, uh, the interactive tool, you can change that confidence interval. So you can actually mm. select a value which you think is more um, maybe clinically uh, uh, relevant, perhaps. Mm. Yeah, mm. so... Yeah, Check how out certain the, do you have to be? That's the question. Yes, yeah, yeah. I'm not sure. I'd, I'd as a patient want want my doctor to be waiting till till that point. Mm. Right. Shall we go on? So we're going to go on to COVID now with the next question. So we've reached so, March. <laughs> we've reached March, <laughs> but don't worry. We're not. We're not only. <laughs> two twelfths of the way through the quiz <laughs> well there aren't many topics for the rest of the year let's face it yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay so which method of estimating oxygen saturation during a remote assessment was quickly binned after initi after initially being embraced in the early days of the pandemic honk honk <laughs> Helen that was my reindeer noise. I thought some cat, cat did Father Christmas. I don't think reindeers actually honk. Were you no. going to give us options? Sorry, if I honked. Well, if you soon. don't need them, go for it. Isn't it that Roth school? It is, yes. Can you tell us more about the Roth school? No. <laughs> I don't well, think do we should spend time on it. It was been. Well, no, let's not spend too long on it. But it, I remember at the time, because everything was so like urgent, wasn't it? And people were so terrified of face-to-face... Uh, appointments that um, this went round very quickly on Twitter as a great way you could check someone's sats without having to, you know, put a sats probe on them. Um, so, so you had to, um, what was it? Uh, starting from one to thirty, no, yeah, count from one to thirty on your native language during a single exhalation. Yeah. Time taken to reach that 
point is um, your counting time. And if it was under eight seconds, then apparently that's uh, associated with low sats. But uh, it was just completely discredited. So don't do it. <laughs> that was in that great article by Trish Greenhelge. And um, she was one of our very first guests on Deep Breath In. Mm-hmm. She was the very first. It was so great to hear her early wisdom in those days talking about what works, what doesn't work, giving mm. us confidence that we would be okay seeing and talking to people remotely, provided yeah. here that way. Yeah, yeah it was great. Um, so I guess if you want to hear more about the Roth score, then go and listen to episode one. And that means we can move <laughs> on and talk about something else. <laughs> okay, question five. Um, let me start that again. Question five. If you have four vaccinators giving a COVID vaccine every eight minutes. Oh, Lord. (laughs) How long would it take you to vaccinate 100 patients? Oh, this is maths. (laughs) Um, Shall I give you some some multiple choice? So option one, 100 minutes. Option two, 200 minutes. Option three, 250 minutes. I'm pleased to say I'm not even going to engage with this question yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to guess I'm going to go in the middle Hong Kong I think it's 200 right yes well done you're, and you've caught up you were on two <laughs> points now <laughs> uh, well let's not talk more about the, the maths behind it but uh, are you ex- who's excited about the the vaccination programme it's, um, it's actually started in the UK yeah I was excited to hear Claire Gerarda talking about it the other day um, she talked about how um, her local convent, um, because they were all over 80, all of the nuns came along at once to be vaccinated. And the waiting room was just full of nuns in full habits and wimples, kind of sitting socially distanced, even though they're all in the same bubble in the waiting room. And that was just such a lovely mental image um, wow. that kind of made me feel very yeah. positive about the vaccine. I think one reflection I have on the rollout of the vaccine programme, obviously I I am not a vaccinator, but I have been watching um, my partner who is a GP locally where I am in Bath doing his um, extensive preparations and e-learning modules um, before his vaccinating session yesterday. And I think one of the things that from an evidence point of view, I still found slightly... um, worrying was just the lack of very clear evidence setting out what is currently uncertain about this vaccine. So there was an awful lot of information that key consenters could could give, was my understanding, um, you know, how messenger RNA works and, and all these kind of scientific details. And I think that's wonderful. Um, but there seemed to be less emphasis on, on just being clear um, how long we know this might last for, like how far the evidence stretches. And in terms of saying this vaccine is safe, um, instead perhaps saying this vaccine is safe insofar as we know, um, and it's effective insofar as we know, and this is how far into the future we can kind of reasonably project at the moment. There's no reason to think that it isn't going to be safe, um, and we hope that that immunity is going to last. But there is still... I think quite a degree of a leap of faith, um, which is not to say I am sceptical about vaccines because I'm not in any way, but I do think it's important that the conversations that I had are honest about what we know because that's where we did a really lovely episode for Talk Evidence um, 
last week around trust in public messaging. And I think if you have to undo or alter your messaging, if you haven't been open around the fact that there could have been something that needs to be edited or re-messaged later on, um, I think you start to undermine trust. Hmm. But why is it that that doesn't happen? It just seems maybe as GPs, you know, we're used to having those conversations where you say, I, I just don't know, but, you know, this is this is what we could do. Is there something different about the way... <laughs> other people in <laughs> think? Or, well, when I talk the... to Baruch Fishoff, who's a professor um, in this kind of risk communication, particularly at a public health messaging level, I don't mm. know if we included this extract in the interview, but we were kind of talking about the different languages that people use and the language that politicians um, are sort of trained to use and the kind of language that the press like to message in is quite different from... Um, an information sharing um, language which healthcare professionals might be more familiar with. So I think we have to try and separate when we're trying to share facts and information, including uncertainties and limitations of it, and when we're actually trying to persuade people to alter their behaviour and perhaps accept a vaccination and being clear with the patient actually what our role is there to do, whether we are there to give information and or whether we are there to also try and persuade them to take one path or another. We had a similar conversation about this during um, one of our episodes for Deep Breath In when we were talking about um, vaccinations. We were talking about the flu vaccination and the flu experience in New Zealand this year and having a conversation more generally about what is our role as a GP with respect to vaccines where actually the data may or may not paint a convincing or clear picture. And um, I think that was certainly true of the flu vaccine and also for these mRNA-based vaccines for COVID. Um, in in this case, um, because we just don't have enough history um, since their development, we, we are, don't have that kind of log of experience yet. But um, it, it, I think, prompted us all to think more about that that role is, is it to explain those areas of uncertainty or to persuade or, you know, and I think a lot of us are biased around wanting to persuade and give people the vaccine. Um, and maybe it is just about, as, as you were saying, um, much more eloquently than me, um, just having that conversation about what we do, what we know, what we don't know insofar as we know what we know right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a believer in when when you are open about that, and that, but then say, but you know, my my kind of considered opinion as as your GP, <laughs> no, my, <laughs> my my opinion is that it that I will have the vaccine, and I, I'd recommend you do. Then then people tend to um, be more likely to to follow that that recommendation than if you're just trying to bulldoze the, mm. the conversation. And also, I think the thing with bias is that it's dangerous when it's unconscious. So, you know, if you're aware of your bias and you are explicit about it with yourself and with your patients and say, you know, I am biased towards an interventional biomedical model. (laughs) You know, I'm biased to have a, a high level of faith in some of this science, but with these caveats around the data and the uncertainty and blah, blah, blah. Um, I think, I think it's, 
we're doing people a service if we all kind of surface that bias and express mm. it clearly mm. because it affects our decision making it affects the way we share mm. information it affects the tone in which we present things um, and I think you know if we can get patients to talk about their biases um, which may often be experiences or kind of experiences of friends and relatives then we, we will end up having a better conversation mm. collectively about about this and, and what we should do mm. um, and surfacing mm. those uncertainties mm. I wanted to ask you a bit more about the the kind of well-being side of things as well, because uh, I think for GPs, well, for me at least this year, the first wave was actually sort of the, the quietest I've ever been as a GP uh, uh, in terms of workload. But now this winter and January, February seems like it's going to be perhaps the busiest because we've got the, the vaccination program in addition to, you know, higher than ever levels of demand. So uh where do you where do you see this ending up, or what what can we do about that? <laughs> yeah, that's a really <laughs> difficult question, Tom. I mean, I think what we've heard repeatedly <clears throat> this year, I think from the Wellbeing podcast, is that all of the things that you think work probably do work. So all of the <coughs> things around um, trying to uh, make a mental separation between your work time and your home time is very important and it's particularly challenging I think for a lot of people to do I mean if you're going into a practice and if you face to face you will have some kind of transition between your work life and your personal life but if you don't or even if you do have that space to kind of consciously create a kind of transition ritual almost where you are kind of um, able to let go um, of all of the pressures that you're facing at work and try to kind of not carry them into the other areas of your life you know that's that's very important for people mm. and we've heard a huge range of different um interesting experts talking about this from um kind of people who specialize in mental health in the army talking about you know how you have rest and recuperation when you're being deployed in a combat zone or to how you transition back from spending six months as a medic in antarctica and how that time to kind of readjust <coughs> to normal life is important so i think paying mm. attention to the things that you can control is really important you know you can't control the pressures you can't control the vaccination schedule and you know the experience at work but you can control how you respond to it and the time that you give yourself so I think um, that transition seems to be increasingly important and I think we're really aware of that as GPs we all know kind of you know the the branch of the consultation that's housekeeping um, and perhaps we need yeah. to be more conscious of that than ever like how do we housekeep ourselves and our emotions um, so I think that's critical and I think also you know some of the mindful te mindfulness techniques are important so I think the kind of the when you're doing that housekeeping in between consultations taking those few seconds to, to ground yourself um there's things you know rituals like what can I see what can I smell what can I taste what can I hear just kind of really centering yourself in the moment so that you're not constantly being overwhelmed with the anxiety about what's to come or what has mm. been but really just kind of working in the moment and dealing with what do I have to do right here right now um, because you can nearly always manage to do the thing that you have to do right here right now it's the pressure and awareness of all the other stuff that's that's really really difficult so i think those are two kind of really small things that people have found effective well um a couple of things you, you mentioned there very much remind me of, of a guest we had on one of our early podcasts uh, judd brewer 
who uh, is a uh, well we're about to hear a clip from him so I better get this right because he'll probably hear what I'm about to say uh, <laughs> a, new, a neuroscientist but also a psychiatrist and he does a lot of work around mindfulness and um, burnout and anxiety and um, I loved his expression that about you can sort of sneeze on somebody's brain from anywhere in the world and just be be mindful of <laughs> who's around you like online on Twitter and I think I was certainly getting a lot of you know, feeling very anxious at times because of all of the other people's anxieties being sort of transferred onto me. Uh, and he said, um, you know, stop watching the news, <laughs> uh, which I did, and that really helped. Uh, so we got him back on, actually. Yeah, <laughs> uh, we got him back on to, to give us some more tips uh, to how to how GPs can uh, survive, I suppose, or avoid the burnout over the next few months. So shall we have a listen to Judd again? And that interview is coming up after this from our sponsor. When you're a GP, you're not just nine to five. Being a GP is part of who you are, whatever the time of day. So when it comes to your indemnity, you need someone you can turn to at any time. Medical protection is always here for you with expert medical legal advice, including 24 seven in an emergency. We don't just cover patient claims, we're also here to provide support and legal representation when it comes to GMC inquiries, coroner inquests, criminal investigations and more. Online, we offer risk prevention courses and webinars to keep you up to date with current news, risks and legislation. We also go the extra mile when it comes to your well-being. With a free counselling service and e-care app, we're helping members take positive steps to better mental and physical health. It's the protection your career deserves, all in one place. And if you're about to qualify or have recently qualified, we can help you take the next step in your career with savings on membership for newly qualified GPs. To find out more, visit medicalprotection.org. So how can we stave off burnout? Well, I think of three key things to, to start with. One is know its causes. Like any good physician, we want to diagnose the problem. I'm going to focus on two of the, the key causes that I'm seeing a lot of right now. One is a lack of autonomy, and the second one is uncertainty. So often it feels like we don't have control over our you know what's going on right now. Just being able to see that very clearly is going to help us work with that. And I'll talk about that in a minute. The second is uncertainty. There's a huge amount of uncertainty happening right now. We're in the middle of a pandemic. We're in the middle of trying to roll out vaccines for this pandemic. There are tons of pieces of uncertainty that are happening right now. So simply being able to recognize, you know, is this something related to my autonomy? Is this something related to uncertainty? So we can clearly diagnose what the cause is around you know, one aspect of burnout. Step two, once we know its causes, is to treat the causes. Something very, very simple. Uh, this is, many folks probably are aware of the serenity prayer. A lot of my patients use this in trying to work with uh, their addictions. It basically says, you know, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. The reason I'm focusing on this is because this helps with both the autonomy and the uncertainty. 
we spend a lot of time trying to change things that we can't. We, we beat our heads against the wall. We spend a lot of energy doing, you know, doing a lot of work that's not actually productive. So it's really important to be able to treat those causes. Oh, is this something I can actually change? Great. That gives us the courage and the wisdom to be able to focus on things that we can change and then let go of the things that we can't. Number three, physician, heal thyself. So we all know the things that are going to make us healthy. These are things that we tell our patients all the time. So make sure you eat healthy food, make sure you exercise, make sure you get enough sleep, and make sure you (laughs) reduce your stress. This is a duh for all of us. Yet we can know this intellectually, yet not implement this for ourselves. So what I'm going to focus on here is a slightly different approach. Now, our brains, from a neuroscientific standpoint, our brains really focus on doing behaviors that are rewarding. So what I'm going to suggest is that we reflect back on times when we actually did these things. So when we went to bed instead of checking our social media feed or our Twitter feed, when we actually took the extra 15 minutes to cook a healthy meal as compared to getting takeout, when we actually took you know 20 minutes to uh, do a short stint of exercise, go for a walk, meditate, pray, whatever it is that helped us uh, de-stress. Now, what I'm focusing on here is reflecting on these things. In the moment when we have an opportunity to choose between getting takeout and cooking healthy food, what we need to do is reflect back on our previous experience and ask, what was it like when I did X versus Y? So our brains can clearly see the difference in terms of what is more rewarding. I don't know anybody that says, you know, I wish I didn't spend that extra 15 minutes to do that stress reduction thing because now I feel less stressed and that's terrible. No, (laughs) they say, boy, it was worth that extra 15 minutes. It was certainly worth that, you know, extra 15 minutes of sleep when I turned off my, my phone and went to sleep. So reflecting back on these things when we have these choice points can help us be able to remember how rewarding those things are and that recollection of the reward is what actually can help drive us into doing that behavior again and then it becomes a virtuous cycle. So those are the three steps. Know the causes, autonomy, uncertainty, treat those causes, remember whatever works for you. I love the serenity prayer, you know, accept the things we can't change, uh, change the things that we can and really use our noggins to know the difference between those two and then heal thyself. You know, remember what it's like when we do take care of ourselves. Use that recollection to help drive that forward in a virtuous way. I think that was really helpful and I feel very pleased to have been saying the same thing or in line at least. That's very (laughs) gratifying to feel that I have learned something from all our amazing guests this year. I just want to reflect on the kind of take care of yourself and being healthy thing. Um, I think obviously it is incredibly important and it it is genuinely true that sleep and exercise and and food and good healthy food will will help our mental health and our well-being. Um, But I think also there is this kind of um, slight, I don't know what to call it, shaming around well-being like you know if what you need right now is to climb into bed with a tub of ice cream and watch back-to-back episodes of friends for three hours then that's okay like it's all right to listen to 
your body telling you or your mind telling you what you need mm. to feel better right now um, and obviously if those are very um damaging habits in the long term around food or addiction substances alcohol you know then then we need to be cautious around that but i think you know there is this idea that um or what you need to do is go and um kind of do yoga and meditate and, and clear your mind rather than you know clear your mind by playing a video game or or something else so it is really about i think understanding what works for you and what's effective stress reduction and escapism and not blaming or judging yourself um, I think that's such a good point, Kat. The thing that came to mind for me listening to Judd, who's always so great, um, is what about when you're feeling too down to actually push yourself to do those things? If you can say, remember that time when I chose to do X healthy, quote unquote, behavior instead of mm. Y less healthy behavior and how great that felt. And then there's something that's so stressful or so crippling from an anxiety perspective or if your mood is just not there what what do we what do we do how can we advise patients i i feel like this is for me so much of the challenge how do you encourage people to build that internal motivation even when they can have that positive reflection And I think, you know, it's you don't more have to healthy answer behaviors. That, <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> but I think, you know, when you are feeling Wouldn't that, you? when you are feeling that anxious or overwhelmed, like having a shower is a huge achievement. And I sort of think, mm -hmm. you know, being, mm -hmm. being kind to yourself and not setting goals that are overwhelming or unreachable. I think this is less talking about patients who are depressed and anxious, because I think it's a slightly different approach. But clinicians, particularly, we may have this tendency to be very competitive with ourselves or other people and like oh I'm going to um, run a marathon or I'm going to you know meditate every day for half an hour and be really really good at it um, so I think it's just about reducing those expectations and recognizing that everything you can do that has a positive impact on your well-being is a step in the right direction and that can be really really small mm -hmm. and sometimes it's not putting pressure on yourself and saying well you know I've cooked from fresh every night for the last three weeks and actually today I'm going to let somebody else do it and we're going to have takeout and we're going to not worry about any of that. Isn't there also something just around what's humanly possible? I mean, a lot of this stuff around autonomy, the kind of diktats that come, um, it, it's not only taking away your autonomy, but often it's also providing you with an awful lot of extra work. And I think people's own personal thresholds for either absorbing work or very rapid task switching or changing and doing something totally new. That differs. There's loads of stuff going on in people's general lives that also probably affects their ability to, to deal with those things. And when you hear so much about sort of the NHS being overwhelmed, I think it is also important to consider that that's not just a matter of beds or the number of appointments on offer. It's also people's capacity healthcare workers capacity to deal with all of that as human beings as individuals not just as a collective thinking you know in a vaccine clinic you should be able to get through x number of patients or as a gp you should be able to consult at a certain rate or deal with a certain number of phone calls i, th I think there is to 
an extent, a, a line, everyone has a line and there are probably then collective lines where you also need to say, no, I can't do that thing. But then I think it comes back to that that's why it's so important that we work in teams. So even in the in the community, when you can feel quite isolated as a GP, you know, you have got a team around you because I think that threshold changes on a daily basis. So some days you can be the one that soaks it all up and you can work late and you had a particularly good night's sleep or you're particularly feeling strong today. Uh, And other days you just can't do it, but we don't necessarily allow our workload to flex across the team. And I think if we got better at kind of having those conversations with each other that say, do you know what, today I'm really, today is a hard day. I really can't do it today. Today, could you pick up some of this slack and then I will in turn do that for you tomorrow I think some of the structures and ways in which we work as GPs are not very amenable to doing that and I think if we can build in some of that flexibility which which you can see more in some hospital teams or very functional hospital teams obviously very dysfunctional teams as well um, then I think I think we would see a kind of greater sense of collective well-being so it's not just about individual well-being it's about collective well-being yeah and that might have got harder this year for GPs. Um, I feel like we're more and more, you're in your room, you know, from the moment you get in till, till when you leave, um, because you're not going outside the room so much to get your patients and mm. can't go in the communal areas. Um, so yeah, that's, um, it gets harder. Uh, just going back to, to, to Judd's uh, point there about, uh, I mean, I did think it was useful to raise your sort of conscious you know, to have a conscious thought when you're about to do something, because I find myself all the time, and maybe what he's talking about is maybe on the milder level of stress and burnout is when, you know, it's, you meant to go to bed half an hour ago, but you've been scrolling Twitter or, um, you know, as an example, um, quite useful to to have that moment of awareness and how will I feel at the end of this? Uh, And actually, I only spoke to him yesterday, but I've tried that already and, and it seemed to help and I got got to bed early last night and uh you know it yeah it seems a useful uh little trick as as part of the armory i suppose rather than the whole the whole picture um i should say judd's got a very good uh uh free course for burnout for for gps on on his website and uh which i've also done, done a little bit of uh it's a similar style with his videos and yeah it's a useful thing to to have a look at So our final part of the quiz, which will be very sad to hear that we're at that stage already, Aww. is the the lateral flow test game. Yeah. <laughs> so I only realised, or I only heard this week that we're in practices in, in England at least going to get lateral flow tests so we can test staff, I think, twice a week uh, from the new year. So I thought, what better way to end the podcast than the lateral flow test game where we can have think about how accurate these tests are and uh and what what mistakes we might make <laughs> in using them and this has been something which there has been a lot in the bmj about uh in in recent weeks so we've got this interactive on bmj.com which is uh which has been on there for a while as part of the covid testing article where you can plug in your pre-test probability uh, along with the sensitivity and specificity of the, the tests that you're doing. And you can get 
some answers about the, the likelihood of false positives and false negatives and so on. So we're going to do that with the lateral flow test. Now, sorry, I feel like I'm just talking all the time. So and I've lost my train of thought. Okay. Let me start again, not start again. Let me carry on. So with these lateral flow tests, there's some controversy around what the, there's a real world sensitivities are versus what, what they are in, in the studies. So when we're doing this game, shall we use the sensitivities as performed by NIHR nurses or, or the Boots Test Centre employees? Helen, boots what do you like us to? Oh, sorry. Boots. Go, yeah. I, d I definitely go Boots. I agree with Kat. Well, that's good, because that's the only one I've uh, worked out the answers for. So that... See, all of our brains think the same. <laughs> yeah. We've all been influenced, GP brainwashed into the real world. Absolutely. So that's a sensitivity, just so you can do the maths in a moment. If it, only 58% with the lateral flow tests for detecting COVID. So let's start with an example of... Let's take an asymptomatic person in a fairly high prevalence area, and maybe maybe it's a health worker maybe flouting the rules a bit and uh, maybe have a, a pre-test probability you, you reckon of around 1% of having COVID even though they don't have any symptoms which may or may not be accurate but 1% one, 1 is the smallest you can put in the calculator so how many false negatives would you expect <laughs> <laughs> how many false negatives would you expect if you test 100 people is the answer A 0 B 3 or C 10 Buzz in when you're ready. <laughs> Can't you tell us on the calculator? So, um, oh, sorry, I should put you out of your misery. You know, but that's the answer is zero. Because... I was just about to say it's zero because uh, if it's, it's a pretest probability of one percent, that means yeah, that you're, you're estimating only one person in a hundred to be positive, right? That's right. That's mm -hmm. right. That's right. Yeah. And so a test of fifty-eight percent. That would still more than likely give you that one positive. That's right. Test. That's right. Yeah. Which I think is um, so. Helen, I'm going to look to you now because I'm sure you've talked about this on Talk Evidence. <laughs> but uh, we've but, talked about testing a lot. <laughs> but my understanding is then that so obviously over 100 people, that's kind of okay. But as you get to larger numbers, which we will be doing, so if you do a thousand tests, then you're going to detect six people, but have four, but miss four approximately and I guess that's the the concern isn't it that we're going to be falsely reassuring lots of people through this yeah it's it's kind of a mixture between a kind of mass public health intervention so these kind of small numbers start to have big implications for um, pe people's lives in absolute terms and around the prevalence area that you're t testing in and um, those are those are kind of the two the two key um, points that I think John Deeks, who we've spoken to a lot about testing on this programme, who is well worth uh, following on Twitter if you allow yourself to ever read it again following the wellbeing section. Um, he's well worth <laughs> listening to. Okay, so the, the second question, the last question in the quiz, <laughs> uh, just to end on a, a high. Um, so we'll take some with, with classic COVID symptoms then. So they've got fever, myalgia, anosmia, and they've you know, the whole household of COVID. So you reckon their pre-test probability is really high and I'm going to estimate that at 90%. So then how many false negatives would you expect if you test 100 people in that? And there's three options. 
5, 25 or 38? 5, 25 or 38? And actually, whoever gets this right will win the quiz, so... Oh, really? Uh, you've got a one in three chance. Um, it's like it's like finals again. <laughs> I feel like I had a better than one in three chance at finals, <laughs> I have to say. <laughs> it's the higher so, one, isn't it? Yes. So it's the, it, option C, 38. Option C, yes. Yes, you're right, 38. So you, you, you get detect 52 true positives, but 38 people are told they are negative for COVID, even though they, they have it. So mm. um, I guess, so, well, which is why I, I think they're not recommended for use in people with symptoms. But um, my, my take home word there, if you've got a member of staff who has some symptoms and you're tempted to use your lateral flow tests, then uh, don't. don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, that's it. We've come to the end of the quiz. And the final scores are... Well, I guess I've already told you that Helen has won our quiz with three points. Yay! Thanks, guys. Uh, Thank you very much. Um, I'm sure you've... It's been fun, hasn't it? It's been good. We We should do this again. But maybe not for another year. (laughs) (laughs) it's definitely been thought-provoking i could have done with a lot less maths and if you want to hear that next year then uh, you can subscribe to the profit channel uh please leave us a a nice review on on the itunes um and next episode i think will be about vaccines so another another reason i hope to subscribe so as we end 2020, there's, there's obviously so much to look back on and, and so much to take stock of. Uh, and we thought, who better to, to do that than one of our past guests and the past president of the RCGP, Iona Heath. And in the episode we had on the fear, she definitely left us with a lot of food for thought and a lot of really useful wisdom about uh, general practice and the role of fear in, in, in our lives this year. So here's her reflections on 2020, which, given it has been such a difficult year, uh, are fairly uh, sombre at times, but definitely leaves us with a lot to think about and some hope for the future. In any festive message, there's an imperative to find some hope for the new year to come, which is not easy in our current circumstances, but I'm going to try. 2020, the dread year of pestilence, has been awash with fear and all practising clinicians recognise the power of fear to generate irritability and anger. The fears have been multiple and multifarious, encompassing death, suffering, loss of livelihood, sanity, love and the loved, disruption of plans, futures, education, employment and careers. For frontline health professionals, there may also be the fear of failing patients in the face of a horrible and unfamiliar disease while feeling exhausted and vulnerable. Fear is intensely personal and different people with different stories and different contexts can have very different vulnerabilities to each modality of fear. As a result, fear may not be shared and the extent of fear may not be understood or even recognised 
which makes the resulting irritability and anger seem inexplicable and unwarranted. There seems little doubt that fear and anger have played out in the hostility and insult that have become the hallmark of a polarising scientific debate about the best ways to manage COVID-19. Much policy has been very understandably driven by fear and yet fear is a very blunt instrument with which to batter people into conforming to public health advice. We already know this through our experience of lifestyle advice, screening and preventive medication. And now we begin to see fear being used to promote the new vaccines when surely this is a huge opportunity to recast vaccination as an act of social solidarity were it not for a lingering feeling of huge financial imperatives lurking behind all official advice. Different people inevitably respond very differently to the same dose of fear. Some have become quite simply terrified, have not left their home for months and may never recover their confidence. Others, perhaps with less reason to be fearful in the short term, try to cling on to normality. The effect is hugely destructive of any sense of community or solidarity. So where is hope? We must find it by recognising that fear underpins anger and polarisation and by reiterating that the emollient for both fear and anger is kindness. We need to remember that our responsibility is not to exacerbate fear through false certainty, to acknowledge the extent, the importance and the creativity of uncertainty and to rebuild the tradition of academic debate that is based on mutual respect rather than the angry certainties that have characterised 2020. I wish you all happy festivities without fear and anger and underpinned by kindness. Thank you.